Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it seems strange and confronting, we know that you speak to us for our good and so we pray that you'll help us to hear you now, Uh, strengthen us in our walk with you, that we might live faithfully for you and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, I do a bit of cycling, and one of the things about cycling, uh, if you're not racing, if it's just, you know, recreational, then going downhill is fun and easy. Uh, you know, you can roll, just about roll all the way from here to Penrith, hardly need to pedal, uh, that, that's easy. Uh, and when you get down Penrith and go across the river, there's plenty of flat country out there as well that you can ride along on, but then you turn around and you've got to come back up again. Now, there are some cyclists who like climbing, but um, I'm pretty big and I'm getting older and I find going uphill really hard work. And so a ride that starts off very pleasant early in the morning from up here, um, you cruise down in the cool, can become very difficult on the way back up. It's just hard work, it's hot and it's tiring and it feels like the climb is never going to finish. And being a Christian can be a bit the same. It's very uphill. You can't just roll along. You might feel like you could, you might think that you should be able to. Uh, You're saved, you're one of God's people, he's blessed you. Uh, Like the people of Israel here, been brought into the land flowing with milk and honey. That just should be pretty easy, shouldn't it? But actually living for Jesus in this world is never like that. The old Anglican baptism service asks the candidate to promise manfully to fight against Christ's baptism, to Christ's banner, to fight under Christ's banner against sin, the world and the devil and to continue Christ's faithful soldier and servant unto his life's end. Uh, Being a Christian is entering into a battle. There are enemies, enemies within our own sinfulness and our sinful nature, our society, both perhaps opposing us but also enticing us, there's supernatural opposition, we wrestle with discouragement and doubt, with grief and sickness and conflict and you mix all of that up together and it's actually hard work. It feels like you're going uphill. And uh, the This evening, it might really feel like that for you. You might feel like you're at the bottom of the hill and it just stretches on forever and you just have to keep pushing and pushing. Or or maybe today, you know, you feel like you're just on one of those little downward dips and it's you're rolling down, but it's going to go uphill again. So the question is, how do we keep going? How do we stay fresh? How do we get recharged? How can we be ready to press on 
Well, perhaps surprisingly, I think Deuteronomy 27 addresses that. The chapter is about covenant renewal. And it gives us a chance to think about spiritual renewal and how God keeps us going. So all the way through the book of Deuteronomy and probably lots of other times before as well, I'm sure you've heard that one of the key ways of describing God's relationship with his people, especially in the Old Testament, is that God makes a covenant with them. He says that they belong to him and he loves them and they are to know him and he makes promises and he calls them to live for him. And so a covenant is a solemn promise, a solemn commitment. Uh, the closest analogy I think we have in our culture is marriage. In fact, we often talk about a marriage covenant. A couple of weeks ago, I had the lovely opportunity of preaching at the wedding of uh, two friends of mine, Kenny and GA, and they chose uh, Jeremiah 31 as one of their readings, which is an unusual reading for a wedding, uh, but is about God making a new covenant, an everlasting covenant. And so it was a chance to say to them that the basis upon which they were making their promises to one another that day was that they know that God has made his promises to them and he will be faithful. And on that basis, they can do the same for each other. So the heart of the covenant is that God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the covenant was initiated, uh, covenants in the Old Testament world were often written down, but almost always, uh, probably always, were initiated with a solemn ceremony. And that's what happened at Mount Sinai. There were sacrifices. Uh, Moses and the elders of Israel went up onto Mount Sinai and ate with God, ate in his presence to establish the covenant. But Israel not only are to establish the covenant, or God not only establishes the covenant with Israel back then, but they are to renew the covenant. And that's what's being described here in chapter 27. Uh, and this is the fullest description we have of a covenant renewal ceremony. Well, it's probably not really the longest, because in fact, or the fullest, because in fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy is a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, they're on the plains of Moab, about to enter into the promised land, uh, having wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And so the new generation is renewing its covenant with God. And the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses uh, reminding them of, of that whole history and what God promises and how they're to respond. And it's not till we get to chapter 29 that there's actually the ceremony of renewing the covenant. But now in chapter 27, it looks forward to another covenant renewal. So it's a little bit confusing because in the middle of one covenant renewal, we get told about a later covenant renewal. And, and you'll see this one is what they are to do when they come into the land. So verse 2, when you've crossed the Jordan into the land, the Lord will be giving you. Verse 4, when you've crossed the Jordan. Verse 12, when you've crossed the Jordan... So when they start to take the land, uh, they're to come to these two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. Uh, so they, they are two mountains and the valley in between is called Shechem. And so sometimes 
Uh, in other parts of the Bible, it says they did this at Shechem. Uh, and, and they do when in Joshua 8, when they've started to take the land, they come to these mountains and they do what they're told to do here. And then at the end of Joshua, when they've conquered the whole land, they go back to Shechem again and they do this same ceremony. And it looks as if they are meant to keep on doing that, perhaps once every seven years. It seems as if some of the Psalms were probably written as part of that kind of covenant renewal ceremony. And we know that many generations later when King Josiah rediscovers the law and discovers how far they've wandered away from God, he has a covenant renewal ceremony. So what we're looking at here is something that they were meant to keep on doing. They were meant to keep repeating it. This is how they're to recommit. So, so the chapter shows us what God sets up to keep Israel going. He hasn't just saved them from Egypt to bring them to Mount Sinai, wonderful as Mount Sinai was, or even just to bring them into the land, much as that is a great blessing. But God's purpose is that their children and their children's children and for generations afterwards will serve him in the land. And this is how he arranges things so that they'll keep remembering that and doing that. And I think it helps us think about how God keeps us going as well. So there are three elements in this renewal that I want to draw your attention to. The first is they write God's word so that they'll remember it. The second is they sacrifice and worship together. And then third, they hear God's warning and they are to heed that. So first of all, remember God's word. They set up, they had to set up two, a, a series of large stones and paint them with plaster and inscribe on those stones the law that God's given them. Now you might sort of imagine that putting, putting it in plaster doesn't sound like a very long-term arrangement. There's a common way of doing public signage in Egypt, which is you know, right next door to where they are, where they've come from. And the kind of plaster they'd use actually would last for uh, decades or perhaps even centuries out in that dry uh, environment. We're not sure what all the words of this law are. Does it mean all of Deuteronomy? That would be very big stones and a lot of small writing probably, or some part of it. But, but the point is they're to record God's word. Verse 8, you shall write very clearly all the words of the law on these stones you have set up. It's like you know, setting up this vast billboard in front of the whole people to show them God's law and to remind them that they need to read it and hear it and remember it. Uh, God's covenant always comes with words. That a covenant is, a, is about words. It's about promises and commands and warnings. And God's pattern is to speak to his people and give them his word and have it written and to have it written publicly. It's not just for Moses. It's not just that Moses is going to have the scroll to read. But that the word is going to be out there for all of God's people to read. It's not just for some special elite, but for everyone. God gives his word to all his people and we're to hear it and read it 
and remember it and keep on reading it and keep on remembering it. And that was one, that was something that really came home to me the last couple of weeks uh, teaching at Talua. Made some of these issues very real. Uh, first of all, just with the students there, these are students who don't have the kind of educational advantages that we have or the students that I teach at, at Christ College have had. Uh, but at a great cost to themselves, they're spending three or four years studying in English, which is often their third language, uh, to try and understand the Bible better so that they can teach it well. And quite a few of the people in, my, in the class actually were already qualified pastors, but have come back to do more study. And I, you know, I, I, I think I found out from them that there was no requirement for that. They just wanted to be able to understand God's word better. And during the class, uh, one of the things I got them to do in pairs was to give presentations about different doctrines. And one of the pairs was presenting on the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, that Scripture, God has made Scripture clear for us to understand what he wants us to know. And what part of the task was to talk about what are the implications of the doctrine. And I was really quite moving as they talked about uh, one of the implications of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is God's word should be translated into the language of the people so that they can understand it. Uh, and they talked about their Bishlama Bible, which uh, was only translated into English in the 1970s. So it's within living memory that that translation was produced. And it's still very precious to them that they have God's word written in their language so they can understand it, so the people in their villages can understand it. Uh, and that all felt quite... You know, pressing and urgent there but of course it's just as pressing for us just because we've had God's word translated into English for generations and generations and hundreds of years uh, we still need to keep on hearing God's word he's written it so that it will be clear to all of us and and we need to hear it uh, that, that's why having the Bible read is an important part of what we do when we meet as God's people of course, you know, we read a passage because that helps us all to concentrate on what it is that the preacher is going to speak on. But it does something far more than that. Uh, this is the way that God primarily addresses his people by having the word read and shown to all of us. And so we need to keep doing that. So how, how are you going with that at home? As, as a family, by yourself? Um, lots of surveys suggest that Christians don't read the Bible as often or as much as previous generations. Easy to think about why that might be. There's all sorts of distractions that we have. Remember, this is how God keeps us fresh. He's given us his word to read it and keep reading it and remembering it. So the first thing is remember God's word. Well, as well as setting up the stones, they're also to build an altar. And they're to offer sacrifices there. And sacrifices were normally part of a covenant ceremony. Here, there's two types of sacrifices. First of all, there's the burnt offering, where the animal is slaughtered and it's put on the altar. And the whole thing is burnt up in an offering to God. And that's probably meant to deal with sin. Uh, the... Burn, the, the destruction of the animal frees the worshipper from the guilt of their sin. 
But it's also about offering praise to God. It signifies that they're giving all that they have and all that they are to God. Uh, It's symbolic of the words in Exodus 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. The burnt offering says to God, that's what I'm doing. I'm offering everything to you. And so it offers worship and praise to God. There's also a fellowship offering. Well, again, the, the animal's slaughtered and cooked, and some of it's offered to God, but the rest of it is shared together. It's just kind of like the family barbecue. We're celebrating together, uh, but very consciously in God's, prob- pro- prob- uh, in God's presence. So there's, there's a vertical dimension of offering to God, worship and praise, and this horizontal dimension of doing that together with each other. And they're told to do it you know, with full hearts. Verse 7, sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. It's not just a matter of going through the motions of ticking the box of saying, oh, well, you've done the right thing. Together, as you worship God and feast, you're to rejoice in that. Because that's right at the very heart of being God's covenant people. This is what it means to be God's people, is to enjoy God and enjoy his presence together. I, I think there's kind of a parallel there with a wedding. You know, a wedding, one of the signs of the wedding is often a wedding, wedding ring being exchanged. But it doesn't seem to me that rings are intrinsically a sign of marriage. They sort of have to be explained to you that this is a sign of marriage. But then often in our marriage wedding services, Having exchanged the rings and the declaration, you know, the celebrant will say, you may kiss. And, and that actually is being married, right? This is actually taking one another in your arms and giving yourself to each other. That's, in one sense, that's the start of actually being married. And, and, and that's what worship's like. It is to be God's people and enjoy him and enjoy his presence together. And that's what they're to do every time they go to the tabernacle or to the temple and there there's a real parallel with us Uh, sometimes people think that old testament worship is completely different to new testament worship you know in the old testament they had a temple and they had priests and they had sacrifices and we don't have any of that stuff any longer of course we, we do you can't worship god without a temple and we have a temple It's the Lord Jesus who is the fulfillment of that temple. And you can't worship God properly without a priest. But we have a priest. It's the Lord Jesus who is our high priest. Who intercedes for us and represents us. And you can't worship without sacrifice. But he has offered the full and final and complete sacrifice. And so what was just in picture form in the Old Testament is actually fulfilled in reality for us or for Christ, in Christ for us. And because of that, we do the same thing that they did. We meet together to enjoy God's presence. So what we do together this evening is holy. It's a sacred assembly. Uh, someone had already mentioned Jesus' promise this evening, 
Where two or three gather in my name, I am there. And as we this evening pray and praise him and remember who he is and celebrate our salvation together, we do that in God's presence. We, we don't just, just come to catch up with each other. That's great. And there really is a horizontal dimension to it. It's great to see one another. But that horizontal really exists because of the vertical. It's because we're God's people together. And so God keeps us going as we enjoy his presence together. And the third thing we see that they're to do here is they are to heed God's warning. And they're told that when they get into the land there to reach these two mountains, they're to divide and six of the tribes to go up onto one mountain and six onto the other. Uh, and earlier in Deuteronomy in chapter 11, in a kind of a little bit of a, a foretaste of this, they're told when they do that, they're to read the blessings on one mountain and the curses on another. And in Joshua, that's what they do. But for some reason here, the instructions are only about the curses. Not, not sure why. But perhaps it's because when, when they enter the promised land, the blessing will be obvious. Uh, they'll look and see. Here's the land flowing with milk and honey. And at that point, what they particularly need to remember is how they could lose that. The risk of the curse. The blessing is grace. They've entered into God's land. It's God's gift to them. They haven't deserved it, but God's given it to them. But they could deserve the curse. They could lose the blessing, and so they need the warning. And so God warns them with these 12 curses, 11 very specific ones, and then one general. Uh, all of these curses could be found earlier in the law. There's not, nothing new here. It's not as if they're suddenly hearing something they hadn't known before if they've listened to the law. But these are some samples. They seem to be examples. They're, they cover a range of issues. Worship, family, justice and social justice, sexual activity, violence and killing. And they're very specific examples over the, all these different parts of their life. So it reminds them and reminds us that God's not just interested in the kind of religious part of our lives. He talks about worship here, but he's also interested in the way we treat other people. The big issues, the obviously big issues, like denying justice or killing, but also things that we might think were a lot smaller, honouring our parents, how we treat someone with a disability. They're in the same list of curses as murder. When you read the list, you can't help but notice the sexual sins that are being mentioned. Uh, probably highlighted because they're part of pagan worship. And so there were a particular temptation for Israel because of the way the nations around them worshipped. But also because God has given a proper pattern for sexuality, that sex is for marriage and nowhere else. And sex outside of that dishonours God and dishonours you and hurts others. And so the Lord warns about that. So the list reminds us that all of God's law applies to all of our lives and it's summed up at the end, cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. 
But I think the other thing to notice about this list is that they're private or secret sins by and large. Secrecy is actually mentioned twice. Uh, anyone who sets up an idol and sets it up in secret, so idolatry is wrong anyway, that's in the Ten Commandments, but here it's, especially if you do it in secret, and then killing as well. Anyone Cursed is anyone who kills their neighbour secretly. Well, the Ten Commandments have already spoken about you shall not kill, but now it's especially secretly, and the others, you know, dishonouring your parents is something that's probably done in just in a family setting or perhaps just in your heart. If you move your neighbour's landmark to get some advantage, it's actually not very clever to do it so they know and everyone else knows. Like there's no, that's, you don't really, you know, you've got to be able to get away with it. It's got to be a secret action. Misleading a blind person, by, by definition, they won't know that you've done it, at least until it's too late. Denying justice to the poor and the vulnerable, again, really only works if other people don't know that's what you're doing. The sexual sins are also likely to be in private. So it's not that all of these sins necessarily are secret, but they are the kinds of actions that other people probably won't know about or may not know about. And, th and so these are a very personal warning. In fact, they're phrased that way. Cursed is anyone who. When, we, when you get to the next chapter, chapter 28, it's a warning for the whole nation. If as a nation you disobey God, you'll be sent into exile and terrible things will happen. But this is for the person. So how you live, who you are, in private when no one's looking, that matters to God. And to continue to indulge sin that nobody else knows about uh, is high-level spiritual risk. That's the point here. Don't just go through the formalities of hearing God's word and worshipping together and then fail to heed the personal warning. And reading through this again reminded me, I'm not just reading through it, but thinking about it over the last week or two has reminded me uh, you know, I'm really good at ignoring my own sin probably pretty good at spotting sin in other people and then giving myself a pass and I, I think I'm good at presenting myself as being respectable and covering up to other people and to myself my selfishness and my jealousy and my lust and so this is a really good wake up it's not just what other people see, but what you are. And it did remind me of that warning in Hebrews 12. Uh, at the beginning of Hebrews 12, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And later on, verse 14, make every effort to live in peace with everyone, to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Look out for entangling sin. See that no one falls short of God's grace, that no one is led away or wanders off. 
And so covenant renewal includes warning and self-examination. I think most weeks as we meet at church, we often include a prayer of confession. I think that's one of the times when we hear God's curse on sin and that should be the pattern of life with God. We are redeemed, we've been forgiven, but sin is still present. And we need to recognise that and own up to it. Come to God and ask for his forgiveness. Not that there's any doubt of his forgiveness. Jesus' death and resurrection is more than sufficient for all that we have done. And God is more ready to forgive than we are to come and ask for that. And it's not that our salvation or assurance depends on remembering every little sin and giving it over to God, but it is good for us and important for us to hear his warning and admit our failings and repent and turn from our sins, hear the pardon and ask the Lord to keep us from sin. So when you have the opportunity as you worship together, you know, take time to name your sins to the Lord and to ask the Spirit to help you to put them to death and to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. But of course, it should be part of our personal prayer as well. You might have learnt that acronym of sin for, uh, for, for prayer, uh, ACT, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Uh, you know, so the second one is Confession. And I think that we're often pretty, we can skip over that and, you know, we're pretty quick to get to supplication. We've got things to ask God for. But confession, hearing God's warning and heeding it should be part of our prayers, part of our worship, because it's part of covenant renewal. So Israel are... Uh, being called to live in God's grace as we are. He saved them. He's called them. He's about to bring them into the wonderful land to live under his blessing. This is God's generous gift to them. They haven't deserved it. They haven't earned it. But now they are to live faithfully in that grace. It's still by grace God will keep them. He'll provide for them. But they need to keep remembering and committing and renewing and so we need to do that in our own lives daily but I think especially as we worship together uh, each week as we meet this is an opportunity for covenant renewal uh, and of course there are moments in life and seasons in life when you go through some great spiritual revival and renewal in your own life and that's a wonderful blessing but I think God's normal way for most of us most of the time is each week being reminded who we are who he is hearing his word enjoying his presence together heeding his warning and each week God renews us that way so it is uphill it's going to be uphill all the way home but God will get us there. And he calls us to worship 
to keep us going. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you care for us and provide for us. You're near us. And so we pray that you'll help us to hear your word, to remember it. Help us to worship you. We thank you for the the joy and encouragement it is this evening to sing your praises and to pray to you together. Uh, Help us to hear your warnings as well and take them to heart. Turn from our sins and to seek your forgiveness in Christ. And so we pray that together you will keep us your faithful people. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.